ladies and gentlemen, catchers of all ages, and to our listeners around the world, it's time for the only podcast by catchers, The Mound Visit, with your host, Tyler Goodrow, Chris News, and CJ Medlin. And on his way out to the mound first is Tyler Goodrow. Welcome back, everyone, to The Mound Visit, the Catcher's Podcast Show. Before we get rolling with our eighth inning mound visit, we hope everyone out there listening is staying safe. Do your part to help the fight against COVID-19 and stay home. Pull out your earbuds, crank the volume up, and give us a listen. We also want to give a shout out to our loyal partners over at All Star Sports. Numerous drills all you amateur catchers can be doing with their wide array of training gloves. All right. We're going to switch gears now to arguably the most anticipated show thus far. So give that sign, put that left knee down, right leg out. Are you ready to go bottom feeding? Let's go. All right, here we go. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. We are taking our eighth inning mound visit today with the New York Yankees Major League Catching and Quality Control Coach, Tanner Swanson. Tanner, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing well, my man. I, I really appreciate you guys having me. I've uh, really enjoyed the work you guys have put together, uh, what you're doing with this podcast and, and the guests you're bringing on. It's, uh, you know, being on the other end of it, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, all the episodes so far. So happy to contribute and, and looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening, too, by the way. Um, as I understand, you're doing a double header today. Uh, you got enough coffee in you yet? I'm on my second round here. This is uh, game two. So first thing I want to point out is that you're from Seattle, Washington area. Our fourth inning guest, Craig Driver, is also from the Seattle area. Kai Correa played collegially at Puget Sound near Seattle. Driveline was concepted in Seattle. And being from Omaha, uh, where we host the College World Series, the University of Washington made their first appearance a couple years back. So I guess... Would it be fair to say to you that Seattle has become kind of this baseball coaching version of the late 80s, 90s grunge rock capital of the nation? (laughs) I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, I think just a bunch of young, hungry dudes that are, you know, um, kind of blessed. I think I I look at it this way anyway. Um, Kind of we're we're lucky to be at a place in our game and in a time where um, people like myself, people like Craig, Kai, um, you know, can even have an opportunity to engage, you know, in, in a professional baseball setting, given none of us, you know, played at this level. Um, and I don't think that was possible, you know, not that long ago. And I think, um, you know, I, I feel grateful just to, to live in this era where, um, you know, those types of barriers, you know, no longer, you know, prevent you from pursuing things. And, and uh, so I look at it kind of as a right place, right time, um, you know, timing, preparation kind of meets opportunity and, and just trying to, to run with it. And, um, those guys you, you mentioned previously, I mean, we go back um, quite a ways, you know, when I was at the University of Washington running, our, you know, directing our youth camps, uh, we probably, have, you know, looking back, had the most overqualified, you know, youth baseball staff, you know, in the country. Um, with, with Billy Boyer in that mix and yeah, Cody Atkinson yeah. and um, a lot of guys that have matriculated into professional baseball. And it was, it was a really fun time looking back. Um, 
you know, because it was a really collaborative group and, and guys that, you know, challenged each other and had fun with one another and, and then pushed each other to, you know, to get better as coaches and to grow. And um, it's been really fun to, to kind of watch guys' careers um, blossom. Well, we're going to get to know you a little bit more here, but before we get going, um, there's a lot we want to get to. And of course, I know for certain we're going to discuss the hottest topic, I think, in all of catching uh, the one knee setups. Um, but before we get going, we're going to switch things up a little bit, um, especially since it's the eighth inning and we're bringing you on to bridge us to the ninth, uh, which our ninth inning guest is somebody that you know very well. Um, but before we get going, knowing that you're a very intellectual guy and that you can handle pressure, which you're going to need when you're in the Bronx this year, uh, we're going to fire off what we call our blocking drill at you right away. So Chris, if you want to go ahead and, and fire some, our, our blocking drill right at Tanner, right out the gate. Did you, did you, guys, did you guys set this? Is this a setup? <laughs> no, we, we did this with Tucker too. So yeah. first question, right. you had to pick a catcher, Jake Taylor or Crash Davis. Who would you pick and why? Uh, I like Jake Taylor. I don't, you know, those, those major league movies were classics and, uh, you know, something about, you know, him waking up, uh, hung over in the, in the Mexican baseball league. Uh, I don't want to say resonates with me. That'd be a bad message to portray, but, um, you know, I, I like that story and kind of a, a throwback, um, you know, renegade type who, uh, was kind of against the grain, but, you know, a good leader and, and played hard and, and, uh, did it for all the right reasons so I'm, I'm a jake taylor fan perfect all right second question best college rivalry um for me it was washington oregon state i think uh you know that was that was kind of the, the heated battle up here in the northwest and, and continues to be so good all right and my last one <clears throat> you got your choice between knee-high pants with stirrups or baggy and long what guy are you I wear down currently, but I, I would, I would prefer the, the high with stirrups. That's, that's a better look. So if you, if you go down to the minor league camp at all, they'll have to teach you how to do the Yankee blouse with your pants. So yeah, I'll, I'll have yeah, to do that. Tyson talking about that. All right, CJ, you're up. All right. Shave, no shave. No shave for sure. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell uh, Brian Cashman, but no shave. Okay. Uh, favorite part about being in New York right now? Um, I'm not there now, thankfully. Um, you know, I think just the, just the, the storied franchise and being a part of, you know, walking into that building for the first time was, was pretty surreal, just seeing the history and, and uh, you know, and being a part of that franchise is pretty special. Favorite all-time Yankee catcher? Uh, probably Posada, just because he was kind of came up and, you know, as a kid and, and uh, you know, the, the one I probably watched the most. Nice. The thing I want to ask you is, who is, who is the team that you watched growing up? Who was your favorite team? MLB yeah, team. The Mariners. Right. Yeah, Mariners. the Mariners by far. I mean, I, I was at the, the game when, when Edgar hit the infamous double to score Griffey. And, um, you know, that was a, a, a moment I'll never forget. Probably the, the coolest childhood baseball memory. And then the last thing that I have, and, What's what's on your iTunes music right now? What do you like listening to? Um, Chris Stapleton seems to be a go-to right now. Um, you know, we're I'm out in eastern Washington. We have a home um, kind of up in the mountain um, where we're kind of secluded, and, and uh, this feels appropriate out here. 
So not too bad. Um, to, to those weren't on. one. Those one. Those weren't one answer uh, responses. So I apologize. <laughs> no, no, all good. So yeah, not too bad to to start it off. But uh, Tanner, kind of walk through. A lot of people know who you are, and in, um, but for our listeners that don't, uh, give us a, your your history. Give us your background, career as a player and as a coach. Um, yeah, you know, I I grew up. Um, in a small community, Roslyn, Washington, which is about an hour and a half east of Seattle. Um, I, I t- attended uh, Central Washington University, which was, you know, close to my hometown, a Division II school. Um, I think most people know at this point, I, you know, I was not a catcher growing up. I mean, I was as a kid, um, but I was a middle infielder primarily through high school and college. Um, but I always had a passion for, for catching. My dad was a left-handed catcher um, and a member of a you know, an independent uh, professional baseball team out of Portland called the Portland Mavericks, which is a Netflix documentary um, about called the, the battered bastards of baseball. Um, so I grew up hearing, um, you know, about the folklore of, of the Portland Mavericks and, and stories about my dad and, and um, his baseball experiences and, and his passion for catching. And um, so it was always kind of on the peripheral, but, um, you know, not something that I really, uh, I didn't have a, a huge experience playing the position um, by any means. Um, so it was a, you know, an average division two baseball player, you know, which immediately led to coaching, you know, not uh, too far um, after I was done playing and, um, you know, coached at a, a junior college. Um, I was teaching high school. I taught two years of high school, uh, returned to my alma mater, central Washington um, as an adjunct professor. I taught there for one year and helped with the baseball team. Um, and then left that job, um, you know, which was a, a good job. And, um, but I felt my heart pulling me closer to coaching um, and had an opportunity to, to take over a junior college program as the head coach, um, which, which I pursued and, and did that for one year. It was Green River Community College, which is kind of near – it's in Kent, Washington, near uh, where Driveline's headquarters um, are. So I did that for one season was working camps at, at the University of Washington um, that summer. Um, and then that led to an opportunity to, to come on as a student assistant, um, you know, not a glamorous role by any means, you know, but I think one thing I learned as a head coach, uh, even though it was a short stint was, you know, I still had a ton to learn and the opportunity to get into the Pac-12, even if it was, um, you know, in a, in a role that, that wasn't directly involved with coaching. I mean, it was a more of a supportive administrative role um, setting up the field, you know, doing all the dirty work, um, but a chance to, to be around um, that level. And, and uh, that was intriguing to me. And I almost pursued it as a kind of a, a, a master's degree in baseball. And, and that was my mindset going into it, just um, trying to soak up and observe and, and learn as much as I could. Um, and not too long after that, you know, uh, there was an opening on the staff of an actual coaching role. I moved into the volunteer assistant position, uh, which I did for five five seasons there at the University of Washington. Um, briefly took a, a recruiting full-time role um, on Santa Clara staff, um, but never actually coached a game there. I was there, recruited all summer for them, and then um, the Minnesota Twins called, and I ended up accepting um, the minor league um, catching coordinator position. Did that for two seasons. Um, had a great experience. Loved my time in Minnesota um, until eventually just took on this new job um, full time, you know, on the Yankees major league staff. So 
been a fun journey, um, kind of seeing every level, um, and, and really just happy and excited about, you know, kind of where I'm at and, and the challenges ahead. Going back to, to now your current role with the Yankees, what was it like getting a phone call from Brian Cashman that they wanted to pursue you as that guy that was going to, you know, try to, I guess, you know, help in that area that obviously New York's covered, you know, pretty heavily by the media. And there's a lot of knock on Gary Sanchez. And I think what people don't realize is that the big leagues, it's tough to play. I mean, there's, there's only so many people that get to don a uniform at the major league level, but what was that like for you to, to see that number come across? Um, I mean, literally I cried, you know, like, um, cause around that same time I got a call from Derek Falvey. Um, you know, so there was conversations about me joining the major league staff in Minnesota. Um, so I was, you know, found myself in a really good position where, um, you know, I was in an organization that I loved and, and, and had an opportunity to, to potentially, you know, join their staff. And now I was in conversations with the Yankees. And then I knew at that point that either way, um, there was a, a really high likelihood that I was going to end up on um, one of the major leagues, one of those two major league staffs. And, and um, you know, that was honestly a moment I was not prepared for, or at least, you know, if you would ask me that a couple of years ago, um, again, just having not played professional baseball, um, that was never really in my sights, you know, let alone coaching in the major leagues. Um, so it, it was a pretty special day. and and. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to capitalize and, and, and do my part to contribute and, and figure out where, you know, my skill set, you know, fits in and can help, you know, contribute to the larger goal, which is winning the World Series. Hey, Tanner, I got a, I got a quick question. So when, when you got the first call from the Twins and you're all excited, you get to go out there, what was your, what was your first spring training like? Um, it was a whirlwind, honestly. Um, you know, I was you know, I kind of drove our farm director nuts, you know, leading up to spring training because I, I come from a background, um, especially in a college setting where there's a lot of structure, there's way fewer players. So everything's much more calculated um, in terms of the, the management and the group size and the, just the rhythm of, of how things operate. Um, and I had to learn that, hey, spring training is a little bit more fluid and there's a lot more bodies and a lot more moving pieces. Um, and it requires a little bit more flexibility and adaptability. And, and, uh, and so leading into spring training, I just had so many questions about how, you know, how had been not seen it myself, you know, and not experienced it as a player. Um, I didn't know really what I was walking into and how I could best utilize that off season leading into that to prepare. And um, so a lot of it was, was, you know, just, you know, my own preparation in terms of dialing in my own content, but, but being kind of at the mercy and, and being okay with, Hey, the schedule may not be completely dialed in, in, uh, you know, in December, but once I get there and I see the landscape, um, as long as I stay a, a couple of days ahead of our players, you know, that's, that's all that matters. And, and so it was, you know, it was more about just trying to build relationships with our, our player development group, um, getting to know, you know, players remotely, um, and just trying to build relationships as early as I could. So when that, did, that day did come, you know, we could hit the, hit the ground running. And, and uh, so, it, but it was, I, I loved every second of it. And I, I love spring training. I think, 
it's uh it's unique in, in terms of you know the amount of time and, and opportunity you have to, to work with players and um, you're not confined you know by some of the constraints that college coaches have to deal with in terms of um, you know accountable hours and and and, and, and just some of the workarounds you have to deal with in college, it's, it's, it's all baseball. You're surrounded by a lot of really bright people. Um, you know, in college, you're limited to, you know, the three or four co coaches that you surround yourself with uh, on a daily basis in professional baseball. It's just exponentially, um, you know, bigger. You know, there's just that many more people and resources and analysts and, and, and opportunities to have meaningful conversations um, about how we can impact our club and impact our players. And um, it's just, a, it, for me, it's an inspiring time. And I look forward to it every year. So I know that had had mentioned earlier at the beginning of the call, we're going to talk about this hot topic of one knee setups and catching. Can you walk us through kind of your mindset of where you said, okay, I'm, I'm going to give this a try. I mean, where this all started, where this concepted from, did you look at a Tony Pena card and he was sitting up on a knee and said, hey, maybe this can work for this guy or what? And then how did you get buy-in from, you know, player development staff and, and then from the guys? Yeah, I think it's important to note that, like, I, I don't claim by any means to be the inventor of the one. I mean, this has been around for a long time, um, you know, and – you know, I think the difference is, is that players weren't necessarily um, utilizing it with runners on base, but intuitively, I think they believed when you look at the Tony Pena's and the, and the guys that used to use these types of setups um, with the bases empty, they didn't need metrics to tell them that, hey, this is a, a good setup for you to, to capture the bottom of the strike zone. They knew it intuitively. And, and um, I think if you go back and ask those guys why they did it, I don't think many of them would tell you, hey, I was just doing it because I was tired or I was, you know, trying to take a load off, or I was being lazy, or um, they were really intentional with what they were doing. They may not have had the metrics to validate it, but I think intuitively they felt like this is a good position to receive from. Um, and, and all I did, I think, is just kind of take it a step further or attempt to take it a step further and say, hey, if let's validate whether that's true or not. Let's We, we now have information to, to tell us, hey, is this an optimal position or not? If you believe it is, which I do, um, can we find ways to stay in that position more often? And, you know, just knowing how valuable the receiving piece is relative to everything else. And so that's really where I started. It's, it's, Hey, first let's do this with nobody on base and let's, let's gain some information and, and monitor the metrics and, and see if they improve. Um, and when they did, um, we said, well, let's, why can't we block and throw out of these positions? And, um, you know, a lot of the old timers looked at me and said, well, you can't do that. You can't block and throw from there. And my response was always, well, has anybody tried? And I think one of the great things about minor league baseball is um, it's a great, you know, place to experiment with things. And, and I, I was really lucky. I don't know if this all would have came together if I was in another organization in Minnesota. It was, it was almost mandated that you, you have to experiment. Like we, we, they preach trial and error. And uh, I remember our farm director, Jeremy Zoll, told me, hey, if you wait to know that you're right about something, you'll never try. You know, and we'll end up just in the same place we've always been. And if we're trying to gain competitive advantages, then we need to push the envelope and we need to be willing to try things that are not right. Um, and, and that's, that's what, what I did and, and dug into, um, you know, what do framing metrics look like? 
you know, from one knee setups um, across the, or just traditional primary setups is where we actually started. And then comparing that to, um, you know, what the metrics look like with runners on base when catchers would, would be in, um, you know, secondary stances. And across the industry, you see this, this meaningful regression in framing metrics where, you know, they, they fall off the table. Um, and so my whole goal was, hey, how do we close that gap? How do we, how do we perform um, closest to our true talent level, which is expressed with nobody on base, because there's no influence of blocking and throwing. I think that's a pretty good indication of, of a catcher's framing, a true framing ability, um, because they don't have to do anything else, right? That's all they do. Um, and I think that tells you or gives you a good snapshot of who they are as a receiver. And then compare that to how they perform with runners on base. And that gap, you know, I felt like there was a competitive advantage to be gained if we could close that gap. We could be closer to our, our optimal performance levels at all times. Um, that was what we were trying to solve for. And um, so, you know, the deeper and deeper I dug, the, you know, the more convinced I, I was that maybe we were approaching this thing backwards and that, you know, we're, we're up in this secondary stance with runners on base, yet over 90% of the time we're still receiving the baseball um, and at the expense, you know, so we're, we're in this secondary stance, we're gaming towards the seven, eight or 8% that uh balls that are in the dirt the one or two percent of balls that we may have to you know make a throw on uh, call that ten percent you know we're in this stance gaming towards that ten percent at the expense of the 90 i, I just felt like it was backwards and and it's not to say that that ten percent isn't important it's really important and often those those 90 you know those 90 foot advancements um they do they are meaningful and we, we want to prevent them so I think the misconception about me or the, or this style in general is that, hey, we don't care about blocking and throwing, and that's not the case at all. It's can we be maybe more intentional about learning how to do it from our best receiving position instead of learning how to receive from our quote-unquote best blocking or throwing position. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the numbers kind of speak for themselves. I think our guys – Everybody talks about the success we had in Minnesota in terms of pitch framing, but not very. The narrative doesn't talk about how how good we were as an organization as as blockers. I think we had the the fifth fewest pass balls and wild pitches in all of minor league baseball. Um, so we blocked really well too, and all of our guys were doing were were utilizing this style exclusively. Um, so it's not that those other things don't matter. I don't believe that at all. I do think they matter. I, I just think if we can merge our blocking and receiving positions into the same position, as opposed to two separate stances, um, you know, we have a chance to maybe do both at a really high level. Here's the thing. I think the other thing too is in a very simplistic way, you, when you talk about blocking, if you're down on a knee or two knees or whatever. I mean, you're, you're 50% of the way to the ground. And I think that's what people don't realize. It's, and, and most people don't try it. They see it, and like you said earlier, it's like they look lazy. Well, again, it's like, it's like you said, the quote from the farm director, you know, if you wait to know you're right, you know, that's something that you'll never try. And I thought that was right. exceptionally well said. Since, since you guys know that it took me a little while to give in and uh, try it out, um, Tanner, what, what I wanted to ask you, number one, I think that with this position, you know, back in the day when you see somebody on a knee, Tyler, you're exactly right. They would say, well, this guy's just being lazy, this or that. But I think you have to be more of an athlete 
actually to get into this stance, um, to, to be able to adjust laterally a little bit. And, um, you know, I tried this in the fall. I, I caught with a, a college team. I jumped in a, an inner squad for a couple innings and did one w- couple innings my way. And then I'm like, you know what the hell, I'll just go ahead and try this. So I played around with it a little bit, but since I got you on the phone, what, what's kind of the, the mechanics of the setup, you know, is the, I found if we're going to get into everything, you know, as far as looking at the umpire's view on a ball, you know, you want to give him the best possible look instead of having it blocked. So that can mean whether it's adjusting your shoulders, opening up. Um, I would go ahead and when I've been teaching it right now is I've had my, my foot, my plant foot in front of the knee, which allows me to open up, allows me to kind of lean into my, my thigh a little bit if I'm going with my left knee down. On the right knee down, that's more of a, I think, if we're talking about an outside pitch to a, to a left-handed hitter, you know, I've been, you know, I've been mm-hmm. watching Garber and Garber and some of the other guys too, where it's almost like their shoulders and their chest are kind of angled towards the, I want to say the second baseman a little bit. So what, what's exactly the, when you take a kid who's raw and just say, okay, we're going to throw you in this position, how do you go about that? And that was yeah, a long a, question, I know. No, and. <laughs> And, and I think it's a complex, it's a complex question that, um, that I think is really, really important because I think where a lot of coaches may be missing the boat is that, okay, um, you know, one knee setups help with, with receiving. If we just get into a one knee stance, then everything will take care of itself. And, and it's not the positioning in itself. I think it's, I think you have to look at it more holistically and understand how we can still execute all of these skills from this position. It's not just put a knee on the ground and, and who cares about blocking and throwing, just catch the ball and, and your metrics will improve and you'll save more runs. I don't think it's that simple. Um, and so there's a lot of nuances. And, and, um, and I think, to be honest with you, you know, if I had to write a manual, um, it'd be really challenging because every, every guy that I've coached, um, in these positions, you know, continue just like anything else, like, you know, the approach has been slightly different in terms of what's going to work for that individual player. And, um, you know, I, I know that the narrative this year will be, you know, there'll be comparisons, Gary Sanchez to Mitch Garver, and, and on the surface, it'll look like they're doing the same thing. Um, but me being the guy who's in the gutter with, I'll tell you, like, they're doing it you know, not even close to the same in, in a lot of ways, you know, the nuances in terms of how, you know, one leverages his body laterally versus the other, or um, how Gary Sanchez is going to launch out of his right knee down setup to throw versus how Mitch Garber did it. And, and they're completely different moves that unless you're really digging in and, and, and paying attention, they would look the same. And, and so um, I think it's really, really important to, to individualize it as, as best you can within kind of the, the larger um, confines of, of the style itself, you know, get guys, find what the most optimal receiving position is. If that's a right knee down setup, um, then learn how to leverage your body laterally, um, learn where those leverage points are and how to make those transition moves from, you know, throw stance to block stance. Um, and it's something you need to work on religiously. It's, it's, you know, we work on blocking just as much as we work on, thro- on receiving. 
Um, and, and again, in my mind, it's not a separate skill. It's, you know, the block is just an, an extension of the catch. And so anytime we're doing receiving work, it, it usually, you know, we're blending in, you know, blocking as well. And, and so um, I think it's really, really important that, you know, although the, the training economy would say receive more than anything else, which is true, and we do that, um, but as much as possible, we try not to isolate the skills and instead try to blend them all together as, as, as much as possible. That's a, that's a good point. I was going to ask you, Tanner, have you yourself decided, hey, today I'm going to strap on the gear and I'm going to put this, you know, put the gear on to decide, okay, hey, I'm going to see what these guys are feeling. Have you given yourself the, the risk to do that or not? <laughs> no, I, I think I'd expose myself. I think I'm so far behind that, you know, unlike you who, you know, actually played this position, like all jokes aside, like before I ever had opportunities to become a coordinator, I, I, I received numerous calls to be a major league bullpen catcher, you know, the, and I had to tell, I had to tell these organizations, Hey, like, as much as I'd love to coach in the big leagues and be a part of, you know, even as a bullpen catcher, like as cool as that sounds like catching a Chapman or, you know, Zach Britton or out of some of these guys in the bullpen, <laughs> I, I'm like, I don't know if I'm your guy. Like, you know, I think, I, I think it would really uh, compromise my ability to teach. You know, I think I could figure it out and I could catch the ball um, and, and do an okay job, but, to be able to model it to the level that, you know, I expect our players to be able to do it, you know, would probably be a reach at, at 37 years old. Now, I, with that being said, I, I get in those positions every day, you know, as, as thoughts come to mind, I mean, I'll hop out of bed. My wife looks at me like I'm a weirdo and like, <laughs> and I'm trying to, to feel through something or, or get in some one knee variation that, you know, that I dreamt up. And like, so I'm constantly in that position, those positions, trying to feel um, what our players feel um, just to, to get a better understanding for um, just what it feels like, you know, and, 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 uh, but again, it's what, what feels right to me. I've learned this, that what feels right to me and what feels comfortable doesn't always feel right to, to somebody else. And, and I've had to learn that. And I, I, experienced it this this spring with Gary like when I'm in a throw stance and and I'm digging my I got my right knee in the ground and I got my the ball of my right foot um kind of buried in the dirt I got my weight in the ball of the foot I'm kind of in a track sprinter stance um that feels really comfortable to me and then asking Gary to do it um it, it puts a lot of torque and stress on his ankle and he just doesn't have the same level of dorsiflexion that I have so you know that our moves are going to be different um, and so we had to find a completely different move um, for him to feel like he could propel out of that stance um, than we did with with Mitch Garber or somebody else it's you know we're, I'm still experimenting with different moves and trying to find you know different solutions because I continue to learn that hey, each guy that that we work with is, is built a little bit differently and has different ranges of motion and different limitations and, and different strengths. And, and, uh, you know, so trying to, to figure out what, what move, um, is, is going to be optimal for each guy is, is, uh, kind of the art of, of coaching, I think is, is to, you know, to build the system around the player. What, uh, what was the first conversation you had with Gary Sanchez, um, when you first met him, what, what was that like? 
Um, it, I mean, it was really positive. He's been unbelievable in terms of his openness. And um, I think he understands, you know, why I'm here and, and that he believes that I can help him. Um, but, but honestly, before that conversation, I was really nervous about um, just this was going to be a new experience for me coming from a place where, you know, Mitch Garver was, was super vulnerable and, and took a risk and like open arms. Hey, I need help. What do you got? I know what you're doing in the minor leagues. Teach it to me. Um, you know, and, and now, you know, I'm, I'm being tasked to, to do something similar with, with Gary, not knowing at all, like, is he, is he even, does he have any interest in, in making changes or, or going down this path? And, you know, I'm coming in to quote unquote fix him and, and does he want to be fixed? And, and, and I don't think he needs to be fixed at all. I think he's really, really close to being one of the best catchers in the league, if not the best. I think all the tools are there. Um, it's just about packaging them together and, and figuring out, you know, a method that's going to work best, you know, for him to allow his strengths to really express themselves. But he's a really special player and a really special athlete. And I've been uh, really blown away with just the aptitude that, you know, I I can present something and he can go do it immediately. And, you know, that's, that takes a, a special talent. And, and I think that's honestly the difference between, you know, maybe a big leaguer and, you know, a, a minor leaguer or a high school kid who really doesn't have that kind of body awareness um, to be able to conceptualize something and then immediately do it. And, uh, you know, he, he has that skill. With the, with coming in, have you experienced anybody in any of the levels, whether uh, the minor league side or, or the big league side, any guys you've worked with, any pushback yet that says, you know, they, they just don't feel as comfortable? Although they, they might be able to get to a one knee setup and they can they can make it work, but ultimately at the end of the day, they just they don't feel as comfortable or confident with that setup. No question. I mean, there's been there's been numerous occasions, and, and I'm dealing with that currently, and it's it's not a bad thing. I don't look at it as um, you know, a shot on, on my ego or my ability to, to connect with, with certain players. I, I've really tried my best to, you know, work at the speed that the players comfortable working at it. And it, it's, they really are guiding the ship and it's their career. And, um, you know, I feel like my role is, is to present the information. Um, hey, here's what I think. This is how I think this can help you. Um, but ultimately, it's up to them to decide, you know, when and how um, those those changes or adjustments are going to be made. And sometimes guys need to really struggle before they're they're willing, um, you know, to consider, you know, more drastic um, type changes. I mean, these guys are now the, the position. I mean, these are, these are major league players, um, and they're obviously really really good at what they do already. Um, you know, so I, and. I've honestly, you know, my job, I'm, I continue to coach, you know, if guys say, Hey, this, I understand it. This, maybe it's not for me right now. And, and I, that's totally okay. You know, I can, you continue to, to coach those guys and love them and, and do what you can to serve them. Um, you know, but with that being said, like, you know, I, I also don't refrain from, from telling guys exactly what I think, you know, once, a, once that trust is established and, and a working relationship is, is uh you know is is in place that you know i think our guys know exactly what i think and we've had hard conversations and we've tried to find middle grounds and and at, at the end of the day whatever the player decides is, is what we roll with and um mm -hmm. and i do my best at that point to 
to try to help make them the best versions of, of themselves based on, you know, whatever parameters are, are established. All right. So, so that way all these guys are clear, like, especially our young guys that are listening. If, if they're extremely, if, if they're quality and they're doing their job extremely well and very well, and they stay in the traditional setup, whatever that may be for them, that's not a knock to them as they progress in their game. If they're doing a phenomenal job, whether it's one knee, whether it's traditional, whether it's hybrid stances, whatever it is, that's not a knock to them just because you're brought in to kind of help fix and kind of monitor some things and build some guys up. But if you've got a guy that is just completely traditional, but he's blowing the doors off everything and, and statistically receiving very well, it's not a knock on him, right? No, it's not a knock right. on him, but I, I would, I would argue, you know, and, and again, this, my experience is very limited. So this is taken with a grain of salt, like, but in, in my experience, putting players in these positions, I've never seen anybody get worse as a result of it. I've, I've only seen it help players. So even right. players who are excelling under more traditional methods, I still am really confident that this is a tool that could be added, um, whether they engage it exclusively or they, or they pick and choose opportunities to, to, to get into some of these positions. Mm -hmm. I think it only aids you know, their, strength, their current strengths um because I've, I've never seen it you know take away um what makes them good already um you know so I, I may be biased in that regard but you know that's my, my general feeling is that hey this can only help you um you know but but again it that it can't happen on my agenda you know it's it's got to be right um in, in some ways the player's idea and um they have to obviously be comfortable with it and you know nothing I think that we do should ever be force fed um and, and so you know that's that's the approach I've taken I know from a, the outsider's perspective is mm -hmm. that it's a one-size-fits-all thing and everybody needs to do it and and you know do I and think that, it can help everybody I, I do and that's what I was trying to get in as because we're we're all three of us we're all four of us here are, are fans of the one knee and we agree with it and we think there's there's times and spaces for it but there's also those out there that say you know if you look at certain guys in the big leagues that are are in the the top realms of receiving and they are more traditional or they may go to a one knee here and there but not all the time but then you hear guys down below you know i've got a kid that doesn't have as good mobility right now or doesn't have the ankle mobility or the hip mobility or flexibility to sit with a one knee or you know he's gonna have to work on this for a while until he gets there well if he can't catch in a one knee he can't catch for us well i don't want, I want guys to be able to understand that that's that's not what you're saying is it's a process you know kind of like you're saying it's it's a journey to find out where you're going to get to in the long run what best fits each guy sure I, I think the the barrier that is that it's it's just new and it's uncomfortable for guys and and uh you know there it you have to it's one thing to do it in a cage or in a training environment where most catchers would tell you yeah this feels good i'm i i can do it i'm confident with it but there's still an element of fear that, hey, will this translate to the game, which is really what matters the most. And until a, a catcher is in that position and has to make the decision, hey, do I commit to this or not, in a game with a runner on third base, um, like I think that's where – that's kind of the tipping point where some people just aren't willing to, to take that risk and to learn whether this is good or bad, you know, either way. Um, but I think it has to be battle tested, you know, for the individual to know for sure and to have confidence, hey, this is going to work for me or it's not. And in, until you really um, are vulnerable enough to to put yourself in that environment, um, 
I just think it's hard to, to make a, a decisive conclusion one way or another. Going along lines with that, so we're talking about the setup. I want to talk about receiving the baseball a little bit. We had, um, you know, Craig Driver on as well as Ryan Cienko, and we were talking about different moves of the mitt. And right. again, going back to a guy like Gary Sanchez, where he was very, oh, if I can describe this very well, he was kind of stabbing at the ball, catching it, and then moving it. What are you trying to uh, tell these guys? Or And is that trickling down to the minor leagues, to Aaron Gershenfeld, your catching coordinator for the Yankees? But is that – are you guys talking about specifically, okay, this is the move we want you guys to try as far as – allowing the ball to either absorb it or what Craig had described to us was, you know, kind of getting through it and then letting that energy of the baseball kind of knock them back into a flex position. Uh, first off, I mean, Aaron Gershenfeld is, is hit the ground running and is, is absolutely killing it with our minor league guys. And, um, but, but the positioning in which we, you know, gets a lot of the attention is, is only one piece. That's just the foundation that then we can build the receiving skill, you know, upon. So, I think with Gary, um, what you described is not unfair. It's 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 what I've I've seen as well. But it's not because he doesn't have good hands or good glove skill. He's got really good hands. Um, but I think when you're when I think your glove skill and your and your hands and and sometimes can is often compromised, you know, by your body positioning and guys that are, you know, for him it was I thought his timing, you know, based on the positions he was getting into last year. Um, was really rushed and late and so everything kind of impacts um, something you know in terms of um, if we're rushed to get into position our timing is probably poor our routes are poor um, it's it's not as fluid of a move uh, you know so everything um, is influenced by something else you know further you know down the down the chain so um, I think once you eliminate a lot of that, that noise and you just put guys into a good position, anchor them to the ground where they can really hone in on um, the movement of receiving the baseball in itself, independent of anything else, um, a lot of that stuff begins just to clean itself up. And then it's about how do we best, you know, work to manipulate the ball back to the strike zone. And, you know, there's constant debate out there about, hey, is it flexion to extension? Is it extension to flexion? And I honestly, where I've landed is that I think there's, I think the best guys in the game do it all. You know, I think, I think a lot of it's pitch dependent. I think the pitch that's kind of over the plate and kind of centers you up, that's down. It's maybe more of a vertical move. Um, I think pitches that are, you know, maybe working away from your body, you know, the sliders, um, that becomes maybe more of a pull um, in terms of trying to funnel or pull balls back towards our body. Um, you know, the elevated pitch, I think, is more of a, a press through where we're trying to kind of slam dunk it um, at extension. So I, I think there's elements of, of all of these moves um, that the best guys in the game, you know, utilize. I don't think they catch um, a, a single pitch the same way twice. You know, there, there's different moves that they utilize for different types of pitches um, based on location, movement type, velocity, height, you know, et cetera. So, um, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think in general, you know, we're trying to figure out how to be really efficient to work from below the ball um, to bring balls back into the strike zone. Absolutely. I like how you said that you're anchoring yourself into the ground so your arm can work independently. And mm -hmm. like you said, timing's everything, it seems like, and, yep. you know, tunneling the ball back into to each spot. So 
Hey Tanner, with your <clears throat> with all the different hybrid stances that are out there right now, you know, there a lot of the younger kids obviously listen to to this, and they're you know I've gotten a lot of DMs waiting to hear what you have to say regarding everything that we're talking about right now. So that's that's great for one. Now we got the regular the the one knee stance, but then you hear the hybrid stances, the kick stands, and other variations mm -hmm. of it. The the old Tony Pena uh, move right. for that matter. So when you're, when would you suggest for a kid to, or even a player, where they say, hey, I got my left knee down, it's, you know, we'll say middle away, and I'm looking for a fastball down and away, I'm trying to get it back in. So I have my left knee down, my right leg is up, I got a, a little bit of a lean and I'm working under the ball. I see other guys that sometimes with the same exact pitch that will go with their right knee down and stick the left leg way out where they, they've the term I guess a kickstand so can you kind of go in for the audience and kind of kind of give your your opinion on that and when when guys go down or is it more of a feel of which more which is more comfortable sure I, I think a couple things come into play here I, I think there needs to be a rhyme and reason for for the positions that we're getting into um, and again it goes back to you know it's not just about putting your knee on the ground and, and everything else expecting everything else to, to kind of take care of itself I think the moves need to be really, really intentional and they need to be consistent to ensure that we're not setting up a certain way for sliders versus fastballs or in versus away. Um, you know, so for me, you know, as soon as there's a runner on base, um, I think that the handedness of the hitter goes out the window and the focus is getting into a position that allows us to block and throw right from our receiving position. And then you start to prioritize those skills in terms of, um, the order in which they're going to happen. So for me, it's, it's, you know, if there's a run threat, say a runner on first base, we're going to start in, you know, our best throwing position, you know, our, our receiving slash throwing position. Um, so uh, in my opinion, that's a right knee down setup versus, you know, a left knee down setup, I think is really difficult to, to, to work out of if you have to make a throw. I think it's, it's more of a load and go. It's like a single leg squat. It's, it's not very athletic. Um, whereas the, the right knee down kind of in that sprinter stance, I think can be really dynamic and, and every bit as fast in terms of getting into a traditional right, left throwing position. Um, so I think you need to start there. You need to start in that position, um, and, and be prepared for the runner to attempt to run, right? I think the priority at that point is receive and then throw. Um, and then if he doesn't, if the runner does not attempt to, to run, um, then we can transition our, our positioning, you know, receive to then block. And, and I think you'll know that, you know, somewhere, you know, in the lift of, of a pitcher's delivery, whether that runner is, is taking off and trying to advance or not. Um, and if they don't, we can then eliminate that skill. Um, and now it's, we, we've eliminated, you know, the, the hierarchy of the of receive block throw from having to try to do three things really well, now we've eliminated one and now we've narrowed it down to just two. You know, it's now catch or block. Um, so I think for me, just like a hitter is, is in the box, I'm trying to eliminate pitches. I think catchers, you know, can eliminate, you know, skills at, at times. Um, you know, if, if a pitcher is not landing his slider today, you know, you can take that starter from a, a three pitch guy to, Hey, he doesn't have the slider. He's fastball change only, and you, you've narrowed down the scope in terms of what you need to focus on. And I think no different, you know, from a catcher. Instead of trying to do all three things well, 
and really not nailing any of them. Like, let's try to narrow it down based on what we think um, is, is really going to happen and, and, uh, and what is actually happening. You know, and in this case, if the runner doesn't break, it's, it's, it's down to receiver block. Um, and I'm blocking from my best receiving position. So, um, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, I don't know who it was, maybe Tyler, who has experienced, you know, being able to make later decisions. And I think that's the really the secret sauce to this whole thing is that we no longer have to make that, you know, ball in the dirt decision right out of the hand. It's It, it can now happen much later in the process because we're, like somebody said, we're already halfway there. Um, and I, I think I presented at the American Baseball Coaches Association several years ago, and it was all about trying to improve perceptual skills and, and a catcher's ability to read and react and respond to, you know, really unpredictable environments, you know, like the game. Um, and I think research is really fuzzy on how, how much you can really impact perceptual skills. I think you can, but, but maybe not to the level that, that, uh, that we think. And, and so you know, for me, it's, you know, instead of making, trying to learn how to make earlier decisions, let's acknowledge that that's really, really hard to do. And let's instead, you know, I think the style in which now we're, in, we're, we're utilizing allows our catchers to make later decisions. You know, it's in the last third of the ball flight instead of the first third. And, uh, and I think for that reason, now catchers can stay committed to the bottom third of the strike zone, which is the key to the strike zone. And they're never hedging between receiving and blocking, which is, kind of a universal thing you know when guys are in that traditional secondary stance they're always kind of hedging especially that pitch that's down just below the zone and especially non-fastballs it's like is this ball going to bounce or not and you have to respect it and you see most catchers are falling you know to one knee anyway they're just doing it during the act of the pitch because they're kind of hedging in between you know whether they need to catch it or block it and I think that has an impact on how they receive the ball um, and if you want to really dominate the bottom of the strike zone, if you can stay committed to that pitch longer and not have to decide out of the hand, then I think you have a better chance of, of receiving that pitch well. I got a question here from uh, one of our followers right now on, on Twitter. I don't know if it, you basically pretty much answered pretty much everything else so far in this question he wanted to ask in here. But uh, Pat Chetney from Baldwinsville, New York, was wanting to know your philosophy behind working from the ground up in the strike zone. Uh, he did ask about the one knee down, but he, I pretty much think we've, we've answered the philosophy behind the one knee. Um, you pretty much yeah. almost answered it again as well with what we're talking about right now as well. Um, but you kind of wants to know a little bit more of your philosophy behind the, the one knee down or working up from the ground up into the strike zone from, from ground to top. Yeah, I, I think that's a really uh, maybe the next, you know, big conversation that uh, or debate that, um, is, is will surface soon is about kind of target height and where catchers start. And I think you're seeing a lot of the best guys are starting either starting on the ground or they're touching down um, and finding the ground. And I know Craig Driver spoke about this, you know, a, a few episodes ago. Um, and I think it's critical. And, and for a couple of reasons, you know, obviously we don't want to throw the pitch, you know, into the ground. And that's not the pitch we're trying to capture. Um, and that's kind of the counter argument for people who, you know, criticize it. It's why, why can't I just set my glove just below the strike zone, which is, you know, that, that one or two ball buffer zone that I am trying to, to optimize. Um, and, and the reason is this, I, I think, is, is if, if, you, if anybody on this podcast um, were to challenge me to a sprint, and we're going we're gonna to run a 10-yard sprint <clears> race, 
yet you give me a five yard head start where I get to I get to be at full speed by you know by the time the gun goes off to start the race you know I'm going to win that race no matter you know how fast my opponent is because I, I'm already at max speed um, by the time we start and I think the same concept applies for starting with the glove on the ground is to get to that one or two ball buffer zone my glove has has gotten to travel um, you know four or five ball widths um, mm -hmm. and, and has, a, has had a chance to accelerate to full speed so when I do intercept that pitch and move it back to the strike zone I'm working at full speed I'm not working from a static right. position trying to catch it and then manipulate it um, so I think it's, it's more deceptive you know when you when you get a head start in that in that regard and everything is is kind of fluid and it's a faster move um, where it's I'm intercepting the pitch on my way back to the strike zone as opposed to going to the pitch and then trying to pull it back. Um, I just think from from a deception standpoint, um, you know, the, the latter is, is more effective. Tanner, because you're because you're going in such a fast movement, so you're starting underneath, you're riding up through the ball, and you're doing that in a quick motion, obviously, so you can manipulate. Is that the reason why the glove moves so much? One of the, one of the arguments that I've always gotten with this as well, um, and I look back at old tape of even when I caught, you know, I, I still had, mm -hmm. had movement going up in the zone. But with a, a lot of, you see some guys right now that you almost have to ask, you know, when, what is enough? You know, how much mm -hmm. should you move? You know, if you're going yeah. on a pitch that's at the bottom of the zone, should you move it just so it's a glove length into the zone? or I see a lot of guys that will take that pitch and almost bring it up to eye level, you know? So right. what's kind of the, what do you tell your guys as far as, Hey, this is kind of the range we want to be in where some will go a little higher. Some will go a little lower. It's, it's a really, again, a really good question that I don't really know the answer to, to be honest with you. I think, um, I don't think anybody knows like what is the optimal distance? Are we moving it just to the closest third, you know, or the, the part of the strike zone, um, that's closest to, you know, wherever the, the pitch is located. Um, is it to the middle of the strike zone? Like what is optimal? And I don't think anybody knows, but I, I do think generally that more is better. And when you look at the best pitch framers, you know, they're moving it aggressively and it's effective. Um, you know, you, it, it may look excessive, but I, I think if you can get aside from like, what does it look like and what are the, the optics of it? Like, and, and really just look at it objectively, you know, the best guys generally are moving the ball a lot, you know, so if that's all we have to go off of, you know, I have to believe that more is generally better and, and whether umpires like it or not, um, which I don't want to sound insensitive, you know, but I think that that catcher umpire relationship um, has really changed with the, with the, you know, um, with the evolution of, of, of framing metrics and, and whatnot. I think, you know, back in the day, that relationship was really, really important in terms of if, if an umpire didn't like what you were doing, you know, he could really make it a long day for you um, and, and could impact the game. Um, and I think catchers um, in previous generations were really cognizant of, of massaging that relationship, adapting throughout the course of the game to whatever the umpire's preferences were. And I just don't think that's necessarily the case today. I think umpires are being evaluated just like catchers are. Um, so whether they like what you're doing or not, you know, they get a score too. 
you know, and they're being held accountable to the strike zone. Um, so do we want umpires to like us? Do we want there to be a working relationship? Absolutely. That only helps, you know, us do our job better. Um, but I don't necessarily think catchers should, should adjust throughout the course of the game to cater to, you know, what the umpire um, likes. Cause I, I, the, the umpires that I've talked to when you, when I've asked, Hey, who do you really like to catch um, or, or to umpire behind? And, and the response is usually the guys who don't grade out very well, you know, because they're not deceiving them and they're maybe sticking pitches. And um, so what the umpires want are the guys that make their job easier. And, you know, those aren't the guys that are really stretching the strike zone. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that we have different jobs to do. You know, the catcher's job is to try to gain as many strikes as possible for his pitcher and for his team and to stretch the strike zone as, as best he can. Um, and an umpire's job is to, is to do the best they can to call, um, you know, a uniform, uniform strike zone to the best of their ability. And, and so they're gaming against each other in a lot of ways. And um, I think it's okay to acknowledge that and just respect that, hey, I, I respect what you do and you respect what I do. And, and let's both do our, do our part to, to do what, we're, what we need to do to perform our job at a high level. And um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's a, it's a unique dynamic that I think has changed and, is, and continues to change over time. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting idea and concept and, and my, my short answer, my long answer to your question is that it's, I don't know how much movement is, is, is optimal. Um, and whatever, I don't know whatever works. Does. Yeah. As I long as you can get the strike, the whatever works. One thing I wanted to go back into was the, the targeting we were talking about with the, where the glove positioning was. And, and I pulled up an article from baseball America and I don't know how long ago this one was, but they asked Mariano Rivera, you know, what are you looking at? Are you peering into that glove target? And his answer was pretty short and simple. And he said, nothing, I'm not looking at anything. You know, he's, he's focusing mm -hmm. on, okay, where do I want to start this ball at? So going back to it and just again, for our listeners and stuff, another article that I read that 90% of the pitchers don't particularly look at the glove positioning. So I think we can validate that by saying, like you were talking about Tanner, about being underneath the ball and, and creating just one fluid movement and putting ourselves again in the best position possible. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, as something that is is extremely important. So we get a lot of questions asked to us and, and people that wanted to ask you, you know, you see this glove target on the ground, but again, we're, we're worried about results, right? How can we catch the pitch cleanly? Where can, how much farther can we move the ball from outside the zone or below the zone and whatnot? And uh, I wanna talk to you a little bit about uh, hashtag bottom feeder. And, and if you've <laughs> brought that over with you from, Minnesota to the Yankees and where did that come from and, and kind of give our listeners a little bit of like okay this is this is our philosophy around how we're going to steal strikes um it was it was really just a you know a cheesy attempt to you know create something that e even young adults you know as cheesy as it may be when you create a, an identity or something they can kind of rally behind um I think they have fun with it. And, and so it was, it was really just an attempt to kind of create a, a, a subculture, you know, within the greater culture of, of the Minnesota twins, but this is our identity and we want to be the best in baseball um, at catching the low strike. 
um, and we're going to create this system, you know, to, to solve for that. Um, you know, so it was just putting a visual to it, putting a um, kind of a rallying cry that, you know, putting it on a t-shirt and just trying to have fun with it to, to create kind of a, a gang mentality that, Hey, this is something unique to our group that maybe everybody else in the organization wants to be a part of, but they, they can't, right. You got to strap the gear on and, and, uh, and, and, and get in cage one and two, if, if you want to be a part of this, this club. So, um, you know, we had a lot of fun with it. Um, to answer your question, you know, we didn't take it to, to New York. Um, you know, honestly, you know, it was, I kind of planted the seed, but, but the whole concept kind of grew organically. And I think that's important. Anytime you're trying to build a culture or a subculture, it's, it can't be driven, you know, from the leader itself. And like, this is what our culture is and this is how we're going to define it. Um, it needs to be player driven. And and so I had an idea in mind and kind of came up with the, the concept, but I, I tried as much as possible to let them kind of um, throw fuel on the fire to, to let it grow uh, somewhat organically. So it didn't feel right to, and then just transfer that over to a, a new uniform. Um, and I definitely didn't push that on Gersh, but encouraged him to, to think creatively about, you know, how we can do something similar. And, and, and he came up with uh, Yankees Bait Company, which is kind of a similar concept, you know, in terms of, um, so we got this skeleton fish and, and we're trying to, I don't want to say bait umpires, but bait umpires and, and you know, fish at the bottom of the zone. And, and, and so there's definitely some parallels there, but um, I've kind of created something that's unique to, to New York that, that our guys are, are having fun with. This question that I had, or at least something that I had heard from you was you're talking about, and it's something that I use with a lot of my catchers that I train is kind of that deception per se, uh, working, you know, at the bottom of the zone. You had made a comment about how umpires can lose track of the baseball just as much as the hitters lose track of the baseball. Um, yeah. And it's, it was really just, um, you know, I, I think trying to define or, or explain, you know, why umpiring is just really challenging, like why it's so hard, and why, um, you know, manipulating the baseball or guys that are moving it, um, why it's effective. And, and I think it's easy to, to sit on your couch, you know, with a beer and, and, and be the, the guy throwing stones at, at uh, the commentator or the TV that, Hey, this guy's moving the ball too much. That's ridiculous. The umpire can see it, you know, it doesn't work. Um, you know, but to actually put the mask, put a mask on to stand behind an umpire in real time, you know, at game speed, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a completely different experience. And, and I think, um, there's a lot to be learned and, and, and I know our people in New York with, with Rachel kind of leading the charge are doing some really cool work on, on gaze tracking and, and just trying to learn more about not umpires per se, but just, you know, how we, how our vision really um, comes into play and, and, and how it impacts performance. Um, so I don't know. I don't know the, the, the science necessarily, but I know that um, hitters, pitchers, umpires, you know, there, there's a threshold in terms of, you know, velocity that when you exceed it, um, it, can, it becomes really challenging to track the duration of a, of a moving ball. Um, you know, so is it the last third of ball flight? Is it the last few feet? Um, you know, I can't say for certain, but I, but I can say that um, 
it's really hard to do consistently and, and to see the pitch um, in its entirety from start to finish. Um, and so for, for that reason, I think, you know, that can be exploited, you know, and, and, and there's opportunity, there's a window um, probably to varying degrees that, you know, if the movements are, are done effectively, um, that, you know, there's deception involved there. And, 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 and I, I hate to say that it's, you know, we're just trying to fool umpires or, or cheat the system or, you know, it's, I think it's an art and, and it's, it, it has an impact too on the psychology of the pitcher and their confidence in um, the execution of a particular pitch. And, and the more, and the closer they are to the strike zone more consistently, um, I think, you know, has a compounding effect to how they execute the next pitch. And, and so we're just trying to present pitches as well as possible for, for our pitchers, um, for the umpire, um, and, and, and give the perception that, you know, our guy is living around the strike zone, um, you know, because I think we, we want this, we're chasing the same things, it's, which is strikes. We want the game to move along. Um, nobody likes the, the long game where it's ball one, strike one, and, uh, and, and people want action. And I think the more strikes we throw, you know, the more action we create. What are your thoughts on the potential of an automated strike zone being implemented here? in the coming future? I mean, I think it's horrible. I think you probably know where I stand on this. Um, but, but like anything else, like I, I'm confident in, I think the game will adapt and evolve. And um, I didn't know anything about pitch framing, you know, not that long ago. And, um, you know, if, 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 if I have a strength, I think it's, it's in problem solving and, and figuring out, hey, what what's what's the problem at hand that needs to be solved, and let's try to game towards that, and and th- think creatively about you know solutions. So, if or when that happens, you know we'll have a new set of challenges that we'll need to adapt to, and and I'll be prepared to do so. And you know, but I, I think it I think it changes the integrity of the game. I think there's a, a lot of compounding consequences that maybe aren't being considered. Um, you know, Craig talked about him and I talk about this a lot about having to also steal first base you know as, as a result which is silly as that sounds like um you know I, I don't see how you could do one without the other um i think the umpire and the catcher will be fighting for real estate you know i'm, I'm going to stand behind you no you stand behind me and and you know and if we don't have to but there's no incentive to block the ball or catch the ball with nobody on base you don't have to throw the ball like you don't have to do anything, you know, with nobody on base and less than two strikes, you know, you can just reach for a new ball every pitch and let the ball boy retrieve it. And uh, if you don't like her all this Chapman slider, then you could olay it. And, <laughs> and so I, I don't know. I think, I think there's a lot of things that would surface that maybe were unintended. Right. Um, but, you know, either way, you know, we'll adapt and evolve and, and figure out, uh, you know, what the next thing is. Yeah, we had uh, Tucker Barnhart on on our last show, and he talked about the potential of stealing first base. And he's like, I absolutely hate to block. And you're telling me that I got to block on every pitch. And well, he said he liked to block and he was a really good blocker, but he goes, he likes it because he's really good at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he said it's not something that he just wants to do all the time. He'll do it if he has to do it. I think that's that's kind of how most guys are. You know, I mean, once you once you figure out how to absorb a ball or get in position, does it get easier? Yes, of course it does. When you're first starting off, 
yeah, when you get a guy that's throwing 90, 95, six feet in front of the dirt, um, feels like it's a jugs machine early in the morning, you know, nobody likes that. But you figure out a way to make it easier so you don't have to worry about, you know, having your, your forearms all tatted up with, with seam marks. You know, part of the game, you're, you're going to adjust to it. But the more that you get a feel for it, obviously the easier it's going to get. But I don't think anyone goes out saying, man, I can't wait to block, you know, 17 pitches in the dirt today. Nobody does. I think there's, there's other things that could, um, there's other solutions that could maybe combat, um, you know, the, the motivation to implement an automated strike zone, whether it's, um, you know, maybe it's, it's one manager challenge on a, if there's a, a critical ball strike call that really impacts the game and, and, and they want to challenge a, a certain pitch, you can go to the track man or, or um, I don't know. I think there's ways we could get creative. Um, you know, maybe only having your, your, your best ball strike umpires behind the plate, and, you know, and paying those guys a little bit more money because it's, they're assuming more risk. Um, but maybe it doesn't have to be a democracy where everybody gets time behind the plate. You put your guys that are the most accurate and, and especially come postseason, and regardless of your service time or age, that you know the best umpires are working the plate, and that's just you know. So you could rethink right. maybe the structure in terms of how umpires rotate, you know, through that that spot. Um, but I think there's other there's things like that that if if we got you know creative, could come up with some solutions that um, would maybe be a middle ground um, or a compromise to you know instead of overhauling the whole system and and really devaluing a skill that um, these guys have worked their entire life to develop. So I want to ask you a question about what the title quality control means, what, what the duties are behind that. When you figure it out, you know, let me know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I think it's a, it's kind of a moving target to be honest. I think it's, um, nobody's really clearly defined it. It's, it's, um, you know, my interpretation has been, you know, getting heavily involved in the game planning, the game prep, the game calling review, those, those processes from an advanced, um, scouting perspective, you know, working close with our, with our analysts, uh, to make sure we're, we're developing good processes and we're, we're using information and making sure that it's implemented into the game. And there's, um, some quality control per se in terms of um, not always looking forward to the next opponent, but kind of fact checking, you know, how we're, uh, how we're executing on those processes and, and the decisions that we're making. And, and so it's more than just monitoring, you know, our, our catchers framing metrics. It's, it's, uh, you know, trying to maximize our ability as a pitcher catcher tandem. Um, and that involves, you know, working heavily with, with Matt Blake and, and uh, the rest of our support staff and, um, and, and I, I felt like we did that. Um, you know, we really laid the foundation with, with some of those processes. Um, you know, this spring training with, with Matt and I both being new, um, kind of taking, you know, the best of the processes that they had in place and, and figuring out, um, you know, just with a fresh set of eyes, how you know, he and I could, could work within that and then maybe have, you know, some suggestions on where we could bolster it even more and, um, you know, but they got a really good thing going there, or we do, I guess, in, in New York and, and a lot of really good people. And, um, you know, so it's, it's just, it's not about overhauling anything. It's, it's about just trying to, to, uh, you know, make minor adjustments to, to continue to improve things, um, you know, as needed. I'm thinking back about my, my days when I was with the Yankees. And I remember spring training was just 
you know, it was like you're in Hollywood. You know, I'd be in a cage one day and Don Mattingly would come up and say, hey, let's work on this. Or you'd know, be in bullpens and, and Yogi Barrows right there. So I, I wanted to know, were there any legends um, from the Yankees of past that were floating around and did you get to have a chance to speak with any of them? Yeah, there's, uh, I think one of the, um, I think you maybe, I don't want to, maybe it's not unique because I think every organization, you know, brings back, you know, former, um, former greats to, to participate in spring training, but it, it felt different, you know, being in pinstripes for me, um, you know, seeing Mariano Rivera and Andy Pennant and Ron Goodry and um, Nick Swisher and, and, you know, guys of that nature, you know, just around the clubhouse, you know, routinely and, and, you know, engaged in, in what we were doing and, um, you know, Tino Martinez and there's, there was a, a lot of guys around, um, you know, regularly that, you know, are there to, to assist and, and help connect kind of the, the new to the old. And, and um, I think one of the great things about New York is just the, the legacy and the, and the, the tradition um, and, and making sure that we, we don't forget those things. And, and everything that we do moving forward is, is to respect what's, what's happened in the past. And I think the Yankees do a, a good job as anybody in, in trying to honor those, uh, you know, those past greats. I want to talk about drills and kind of your preparation will be for when, when the season gets up and running here, but what are some drills that you've been doing with some of the guys um, as far as, you know, receiving, blocking, throwing? Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you referenced my ABCA presentation and where I had, you know, every drill under the sun, you know, you know, packaged into a, a 35 minute presentation. And to be honest with you, I've really narrowed the scope. Um, not for the sake of simplicity necessarily, but, but um, more so just I've, I've transitioned or evolved um, rather than, you know, having a lot of different things to do. It's let's do fewer things, but better. And, and so let's take the, the key movements that we're looking for, which is really in its simplest form, just, you know, mis- machine receiving because you can replicate it. You can isolate different parts of the zone. Um, and let's, let's try to master movements and, and within that, you know, how can we challenge movement? So my perspective has been more, or my approach, you know, the last few years has been, let's do fewer things, but, but at a higher quality and really challenge, you know, the movements that we're trying to create. So whether that's through resistance bands or weighted balls or um, perturbations or, you know, so, you know, I've, I've hung a, a, a light dumbbell or, um, or kettlebell, you know, from a wrist, you know, with a strap and that you could place on the ground. And as we work up through the pitch, you know, the weight lifts up off the ground and, and kind of creates some turbulence, you know, from all different directions, just, just trying to challenge, you know, movement patterns um, in, in a variety of different ways, trying to, you know, create more game like or game speed um, applications, you know, in a training environment. So we, we purchased a, an eye pitch machine, which, is super expensive. And I, I get that many people on this show probably are going to say, Hey, well, I, you know, we're not going to have access to that, but, but it's, it, it's worth talking about because it's cool. Like we, we can, you know, design um, Adam Adovino's, you know, any pitch in his arsenal or Garrett wow. Cole, like if we want to catch Garrett Cole's four scene. It's plug and play to a T. This is the, this is the horizontal movement versus the vertical movement. This is the velocity 
Um, this is the spin rate. You can, you can dial it all in and, and really do pitch design work um, to the point where we're, we're catching different guys' um, pitches on a daily basis. And, and we would pick a new pitch each day from somebody on our staff and, and, and we would replicate it on the machine. And I think that's, that, that's unbelievable. as you can experience. And, and so, I, again, I've moved away from, you know, do X, Y, and Z to let's, let's do what the game requires, but let's do it better and let's challenge it um, in a variety of different ways using constraints and, um, and, and so forth. Did you bring the goggles, the strobe goggles over with you? I, I have them. Um, I, I haven't broke them out yet, um, but, you know, they're, they're in the bag of tricks. <laughs> That's crazy. Do you guys use any type of, um, obviously, we, you know, we used a lot of different devices. Any, any training gloves that you guys use or? Yep. And we have a, a variety of, of training gloves. We have some, some Valley gloves. It's, it's more of a, a buffet, to be honest. It's that we, we kind of, you know, plug and play based on a, a guy's need. Um, I, I like the training gloves, the small ones. Um, you know, we have some of those all-stars that are, that are soft and flimsy that you probably wouldn't use off a machine, but we use them, um, you know, in our, know bare in in place of our bare hand work so you know using weighting weighted balls but actually with a, a small glove on um just to ensure the the the, the catch quality is and we're targeting the, the right part of the glove um with the catch and, and so we, we we pair those together you know um we have kind of the donut glove for guys that are maybe really aggressive you know at extension where they're kind of pressing through the balls and we're, we're trying to soften them up and and help them create really good glove angles um, back to their body. Um, so we'll, we'll use that, you know, with certain guys, but, but nothing's, you know, uniform that, you know, everybody does this to do that. And then we do, mm-hmm. you know, this to do that, to do something else. It's, it's more, you know, at the disposal to um, kind of pick and choose based on, you know, what each individual guy needs or is working on. So um, yeah, we, we have all the training gloves. We got the anchor. Gary likes the anchor which is the, the, the weighted all-star glove. Um, so yeah, we, we have them all and, and, and we use them to varying degrees. Was he able to break it in? I, I've been struggling with that thing for over a month. I can't get the damn thing broken in. I've tried every trick in the book so far. You, you got to catch it in the pocket. See, that's the key. <laughs> no, he, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how long he's been working on it, but it's, it, um, you know, he's, he's been, you used it all spring and it seems broken fine. There's one guy I want to talk to you about, and I wanted to ask him about him a little bit earlier. Was a guy that uh, you know I watched a little bit growing up, and I kind of looked at myself as being uh, pretty, you know, comparable in terms of flexibility. That's the same guy, but Chris Iannetta. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like just watching a few spring training games that we're on, that he's really adapted to the one knee setup and I think that was one thing to point out just because of his restrictions with his lower half and could you talk a little bit about Chris and his adjustments that he's made yeah I've really enjoyed um you know my interactions with Chris and and feel like we've we've developed a pretty good relationship um and I think we both understand you know each other's perspective and, and respect it um and we've kind of found a middle ground where he's he's utilizing or he did this spring um but mostly you know with only with runners uh or with the bases empty you know not with runners on base and that's just kind of where his comfort level um is at this point 
Um, and, and he performed really well. His metrics with nobody on base were really, really positive. Um, so we're just trying to, to, to build on that. And, and you know, um, you know, I think he, he feels like he's in a, a good place. Um, and I think we're just kind of evaluating it day by day and, and kind of seeing how things progress. And, um, you know, will he do it with runners on base? You know, that's, I think, TBA, and that'll ultimately be his decision. Um, but but I'm, I'm pleased with the, the progress he's made and, and um, really respect just his openness and his candidness to – to not push back, but to have discussions about um, his his thoughts and his opinions. They're important to me. Like, mm-hmm. um, I think the most important opinion is the player's opinion, and and making sure that that the, the conversation is always two way. And and we've had some really um, open dialogue about kind of some of the pros and cons, and and some of the reservations, and and how we can kind of find a middle ground to to make it work for him. Um, you know, you're talking about a guy who's who's played at this level for a long time um, and, and has been a really, really good player. So um, I respect that he's um, even interested in, in, in entertaining, you know, the discussion. And, and uh, you know, it's, I've enjoyed our, our time together so far and, and look forward to continuing if or when, uh, you know, we get the opportunity. Yeah everything that has gone on right now and in just your short time in New York, are there some guys, some prospects that you're, you're kind of high on that you feel like, Hey, these guys have a real good chance of, of being very good big leaguers someday. There, there's a crop of guys, to be honest with you, in, in our minor league system that are, that are intriguing. Um, Anthony Siegler, um, Donnie Sands, um, Josh Bro. I mean, these are guys that are, you know, have, have performed at a, at a high level. And then some, some young bucks that I'm kind of just getting to know that are, are uh, relatively new to our system, um, either, you know, come over from our Latin Academy. Um, and, and just due to the dynamic of spring training, it was hard for me to be um, in two places at once. So, you know, a lot of the, uh, my observations were, were done virtually and, and I'd try to pop over there as, as often as possible. But um, Gersh has done a great job of kind of keeping me in the loop on, how guys are performing and, and, uh, but it, it all seems promising. I mean, we, we have, um, some really intriguing young prospects that I think, um, you know, are going to position themselves, um, you know, well to, you know, to, to navigate through our system and, and matriculate into the major leagues, either with us or will be a trade, you know, somewhere else. But, um, you know, I think good problems and, and, you know, Gersh is doing a great job kind of trying to get the most out of those guys. Kind of off-topic question I have, and, um, you know, I grew up a diehard Yankees fan, but uh, not sure this is relative to this conversation, but um, let's go into talking about uh, Aaron Boone's shoe game because I feel like Booney has uh, a different coaching shoe every time you look and, and you see him either making a pitching change or um, – you know, he's out in front, you know, uh, you know, arguing with some umpires. We, we had the infamous savage call. Um, but uh, how many different pairs of coaching shoes do you think Booney has right now? He probably rolled out, you know, six or eight different pairs this spring, um, you know, which was, which was fun. And he, his shoe game is strong and, and it's uh, unspoken that, you know, the, the rest of the staff is, is you know, trying to, kind of compete and, and live up to you know 
the standard. He's 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 raised the bar, I think, for manager shoe game, and is has uh, got to be up there in the top three or or five, if if not, uh, you know, at the top. So, um, what know, do you? I don't think he's quite at Tucker's level. Tucker said he had over a hundred with a with a whole room in his house dedicated to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not not quite, but uh, you know, from a, from a coaching perspective, I think he's he's uh, he's doing okay. Um, I had some I had some Jordan ones that I was rocking this this spring. You know, I, I bought some, um, you know, for our home pinners. I have some the patent and leather Jordans with the mm. the blue uh, with the blue patent and leather white. You know, which are pretty aggressive. I haven't decided if I'll actually, uh, you know, it's New I'll York, man. You gotta wear them. You gotta wear them. Yeah. Em. So I I got some some tricks up my sleeve and just gonna try to feel it out without, uh, you know, being the guy who's trying to draw attention to himself but I, I like I like shoes I'm a shoe guy uh, maybe not to, to Tucker's level but uh, um, you know I, that goes back to our time at Washington too we had fun with with uh, with, with shoes there and, and Donegal you know being the eccentric person that he is right. he, he, he was going Jordan 1's pants up you know about four years ago you know before you ever saw him on a baseball field um, so you know trying to carry his legacy, you know, to the Bronx. <laughs> and uh, Tanner, I just want to thank you for your, for your time today. Um, dropping some knowledge to the people that will be listening as well as, um, you know, college pro guys as well. And, you know, they're all interested in, in what's going on with the receiving. And I'm sure it's probably pissed off a lot of umpires over the last few years about how, you know, they're getting a lot of heat from the um, pitchers that are being, that are being called or not called. You know, so at least not from them, but from the outside or the other teams, you know, you can watch hours of videos of, of guys striking out and throwing their hands in the air, or just looking, you know, just, just looking down going, I can't hit that. Well, you know, they're right. They can't hit that because it was a ball and, you know, we did our jobs of creating strikes. So, you know, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Last thing I'll just, I'll, I'll touch on on that note is, is, uh, you know, I, I think we should all just, uh, agree to potentially disagree if you know i think that some of the one you set up um in some ways is creating a divide which is unintended you know and, and from my perspective at least it, it doesn't have to be either or and i'm right you're wrong if it's uh, i think if, if people can at least acknowledge that like yourself i really respect the process you went through to hey i don't initially maybe don't agree with this but i'm open to thinking critically about it and trying it and, and then you know formulating your own opinion from there and and whether it was you know to continue to dis disagree with it would have been fine too but i think you know to at least take the time to go through that discovery process you know for yourself um and then you know live with you know whatever the side of the coin you're on um but it's disheartening to hear you know the kind of the banter or the debate that's uh, or the divide that it potentially is, is creating. And, and uh, I would just encourage all of us to, to, you know, think more collaboratively about it and, and look at it more as an opportunity to add something to somebody's, um, you know, either coaching ability or, or a tool that a player could utilize to, to aid their game. Um, but it doesn't have to be a, a, a right or wrong, um, all or nothing, you know, um, type thing. So um, that's my, my, so box, I think, to, to put a bow on this thing and 
Um, but I really appreciate the time. Um, I, I really respect what you guys are doing. I think it's a really cool time for our position. And you guys are in a lot of ways leading the charge, just providing a platform and, and uh, for more people to have a voice. And, and uh, lastly, lastly, I'll say that, you know, if you haven't seen, um, you know, I'm, I'm launching this coaches versus COVID just yes. as an effort to, uh, to kind of make myself available and encourage other coaches to, to create, um, you know, free webinars, you know, that um, with the intent to kind of raise funds. Um, what I've set, I've set up this, this coaches for COVID as, a, as an opportunity to raise funds for the Fred Hutch, which is a, um, which is an organization out in Seattle, Washington, that's doing some really cool work um, in research and COVID relief. And, and anybody who's interested, I'll, I'll be doing a weekly webinar similar to this um, you know, for free with, um, again, kind of the expectation that some, you know, donation will be made, um, to the cause. So, um, if other coaches are interested in getting involved, we'd love you to host an event and, uh, the more the merrier and, and let's continue to share and, and grow our game and, and, uh, maybe raise some money, um, you know, to support the, you know, what's happening in the world around us. Can't thank you enough. That is tremendous work right there. All right, man. Well, we really appreciate the time and, Again, um, can't thank you enough and keep doing what you're doing and hopefully you and your, your family are safe and we can get through this and back on the field and you can finally put on that pinstripe uniform in the Bronx. Yeah, I'm ready for this bad dream to end so we can, uh, we can get this thing rolling. But, um, but anyway, really respect your time. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you guys. Stay safe and, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank Likewise, you. Tanner. Be well. All right. Take care. Goodbye. Well, everybody, it's time for us to wrap this show up and head on home. On behalf of myself, CJ Medlin, Tyler Goodrow, and Chris News, we'd like to thank Tanner Swanson of the New York Yankees coming on and talking baseball with us this week and uh, keeping some normalcy to our lives. We'd like to wish Tanner and his family a safe and healthy uh, time while they're home during this break and uh, that nobody else is affected. We'd also like to thank each and every one of you, our listeners, for tuning in and checking us out every week. Uh, without you, this wouldn't be going like we are right now. We hope every single one of you are out there and, and staying safe and healthy and, and being aware of your surroundings. And folks, you're not going to want to miss next week's edition when we have Mitch Garber of the Minnesota Twins on. Everybody, we thank you again for tuning in, and we'll catch you later.